0: You're listening to CRST Podcast
1: from Brynmar
2: Communications.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Cardwell Carones.
3: And I'm Francesco Carones.
1: And together we'll be your host for this episode of CRST the podcast.
3: And today we will be discussing some of the concepts explored in the CRST's June issue, which focused on rebounding after the pandemic and for which we served as guest medical editors. Although the devastation of the pandemic is undeniable, so too are the many opportunities for positive change that it bore out.
1: We were honored to help develop the content for this cover focus and sought to highlight topics and solutions that can have a positive impact on our future and that of our patients. We are especially honored today to be joined by our guests, Drs. Arthur Cummings, Blake Williamson, and Chuck Williamson, who will be discussing their articles from the issue arthur chuck blake thank you for joining us why don't we begin with some introductions
2: hi Francesca and amanda and thank you for this opportunity i thought it was a great article in our crst edition i think it was both sides of the atlantic and certainly learned a lot from reading everyone's experiences
0: hey everybody this is uh blake williamson from baton rouge louisiana the williamson eye center and uh Yeah, I'd echo that. I think this is super timely. Um, We are uh, based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We practice cataract surgery. We are uh, uh, about 15 doctors strong now with seven locations uh, throughout our area uh, here in Louisiana. We're a multi-generational practice where I uh, practice with my father, Dr. Charles Williamson, who's also with us
4: today. Uh, Yeah, I just uh, echo what Arthur and Blake said. Uh, This is certainly timely. Uh, and uh, uh, glad to be on this uh, podcast with my
2: friends and my son.
3: Arthur, everybody knows you as well as the Williamson, uh, but maybe the audience is also interested in knowing a little bit more about your practice. Uh.
2: Right, so my practice is cataract and refractive, and I'm based in Dublin and Ireland. And it's a small practice. We staff of 20-something, but um, I'm the only surgeon at the moment. My son's joining me. I can't wait to have what Chuck and Blake have. He's joining me in about a year's time. But for now, I'm the only surgeon with the with a big team of optometrists. And so collectively, we get, through, we get through quite a bit of work. Great.
3: So thank you all again for being here. And let's begin with the discussion of Arthur's article, which touches uh, on the myriad positive changes made in his practice uh, that were brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. Arthur, what are some of the changes your practice made uh, that ended up having a positive impact overall?
2: Yeah, Francesco, that's such an interesting question. You know, um, I I co-wrote an article with David Lockington some months ago on some of the things that happened during the pandemic. And David used a term where he said he landed up avoiding detours rather than taking shortcuts. Because a lot of the changes we brought about were really just avoiding all the detours of the past. You know, in the past, we'd see patients on day one, on day five, on month one, month three. And we just saw patients too frequently post-operatively. And Brendan, my son, who's now in his sixth year of residency, said, Dad, no one else is seeing patients this frequently post-operatively. So we started seeing them less frequently in the last 18 months since we've done that, I haven't had one patient ring up and say there's a problem in the interim. So it sort of makes you realize all that time spent seeing post-operative patients was, was unnecessary. And it's, you know it's a burden on them too, having someone bring them in and this sort of thing. Which means there was a lot more capacity within the clinic to see new patients. So it's a quieter, more efficient environment, that was quite good during the pandemic times. Now that, you know, things are under slightly better control, things are getting busier again and we're seeing patients again, more patients, but the patients we're seeing are our new patients coming in for surgery. So that was the first thing we started doing a lot less post-operative visits. We started making our communication system within the practice very much more modern. So a lot of it was taken away from the telephone and a lot more done electronically um, and digitally and within the patient's control. So they can make their own appointments. They can um, do it at a time that suits them and on a platform that suits them. They can do it from their phone, from, a, from wherever. And then we started doing um, payments online. That's all done that online now. People basically pay before they come in. Our consents have gone digital. We use DocuSign to do that. And, yeah, generally speaking, we've seen an increase in demand. And despite this increase in demand, we have found that servicing these patients or seeing these patients has become a lot more efficient and it seemed that the practice seems less like a train station. So that was basically the gist of my article that in the way we restructured things is we become more efficient, more effective, and yet the place is quieter and a nicer place to visit.
3: Well, thank you, Arthur. That is uh, impressive. Um, let me comment on what we did, uh, um, you know, uh, Amanda is also working in my practice uh, as the strategic director for most of the patient outreach. Uh, and. Uh, one of the biggest problems we had uh, was uh, really seeing the patients because uh, never forget that the lockdown in Italy was uh, very hard uh, at the point that people could not work, uh, walk around uh, without a permit. And um, we and the patients uh, felt the need of uh, seeing faces uh, more than just uh, voice hearing voices. So we learned that, uh, you know, uh, communicating with the patients uh, through videos uh, instead uh, of uh, through like uh, written pieces uh, or uh, even phone calls uh, was much more effective. So it, our website has been redesigned uh, to have uh, many more videos. Uh, and also very recently, and this is again a suggestion that Amanda gave us, uh, we started contacting the patients uh, through videos and welcoming they, them uh, before seeing them uh, with uh, you know, some clips recorded by the doctors or by the technicians or by the staff, uh, just thanking the patients and saying, we are so excited that you're going to show up uh, maybe tomorrow, let's uh, give it as an example, and we are so excited about uh, our possibility to you know improve your vision and uh, make your life easier. So that is one of the uh, areas where we did a lot. The other area where we worked quite a lot was on the patient's flow uh, reorganization so, uh, thanks to a kind of, uh, you know, journey that it is possible to uh, be done in, in, in the clinic, uh, we really uh, have, a, I mean, we, we, uh, we, we are not using like waiting rooms any longer. So, patients are not going back uh, to a, a, an area where to stay when they are dilated uh, and all of that. Uh, and we like also to uh, uh, involve uh, one single either tech or optometrist uh, for taking care of the patients. So... Uh, At the end of the journey, the uh, patient uh, actually sees only someone, one single person, let's say, at the reception, one single person during the entire journey for, uh, you know, diagnosis and, uh, you know, consultation for surgery, and one single doctor at the end. So this made uh, uh, the practice much more efficient. uh, And uh, again, that was generated by the need of COVID, uh, not to meet with too many people. But as well as the video issue, the uh, flow reorganization is one of the changes that we maintained. and We took a lot of uh, advantage about. What do you think, Amanda?
1: No, I was just going to say that. Um, completely agree to, to Francesco's point. In our practice, one of our key differentiators is the, the patient experience that we deliver, um, especially compared to what most patients are expecting through the um, public health system. So, with you know the COVID lockdown and trying to you know reduce potential exposure. That also brought about a challenge of how do we maintain that patient experience and develop a personal relationship with each patient when we're trying to throughput them as quickly as possible to get them in and out. So that's why we decided to start implementing these brief video clips to welcome the patient in advance to give them that sense that they've spent a little more time with, uh, and these are recorded video clips that we were sending out uh, via via messaging, um, so that they had the impression they had spent more time with the surgeon than they actually had. And then um, ensuring that post-operatively we had started this before. And I think now it's taken on a new appreciation after COVID um, or during and after COVID that we uh, each of the surgeons, the evening of surgery, they send a, um, an individualized, a personalized message to each patient who had surgery that day, just to check on them, let them know that, you know, they're there if they need anything. And that really has gone a long way um, in building, you know, trust and rapport with the patients as well. So it's not just before surgery, but even the day of the doctor you know, reaches out to me to check and make sure that I'm, I'm doing well that evening. So I think that that's really helped us to stay close, uh, despite the fact that we're having to limit the amount of time that we were spending with each individual patient. Uh, what about you, Blake and Chuck? Do you have a similar experience? What changes uh, did you guys have to make within your practice, and have any of those stuck around since the restrictions have lifted?
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think that we should. Uh, I was talking to uh, uh, Marnix and Sebastian Hearsink of a massive practice in Alabama about this very thing. Um, we should we should get together and form some type of formalized study. Uh, specifically around one small aspect of this, and that is the, the one-day post-op, um, you know, experience for patients. Because, like Arthur uh, and many others around the world, we immediately stopped doing the one-day post-op, both for cataract and for uh, laser vision correction, and it has been a phenomenal, phenomenal thing for both patients and surgeon throughout our practice. And one of the biggest game changers that we have, you know, we're doing routinely over 5,000 cataracts each year. Um, And, you know, 99.9% of the time for a, uh, you know, for a, uh, a cataract surgery, that's very routine, no complications, no added MIG surgeries or anything to it, just a straightforward cataract. 99.9% of the time, you know, we walk in the room for 30 seconds and say, "Yep, looks good, patient's happy, and we're out the door. And we forget about how challenging it can be for those patients to even get there. We have, you know, seven locations throughout our area, and our furthest satellites are over an hour and a half away from each other. So in many instances, these patients are having to drive one, two hours Uh, you know, to to come and see us just for us to walk in for 30 seconds. And so we just don't think it's the right thing to do. So instead, uh, we move to virtual one-day post-ops where the doctor themselves, me in my case, it's me, uh, log in right when I get there, and uh, my scribe, Uh, has all, I usually do about 30 to 35 cataract surgeries in the morning, so she has all 30 to 35 post-ops in a virtual waiting room. So I text her when I'm about 10 minutes away from my location to start, you know, loading patients into the room. It sends them a text. We use the doxy.me platform, and then they're able to log in into our virtual uh, waiting room, and so they're waiting there for me. So I can very quickly uh, get an audio-visual two-way, you know, call communication with that patient. And I love it, even though, yes, I probably could get an optometrist or, or even a technician to do those for me. For me, it's just, you know, having that minute or two with the patient is wonderful because they get to see my face. We get to, you know, uh, you know ask about their their experience. It, it You know, oftentimes on the surgery day, it's not a very personal experience because I'm doing so many cases. Sometimes I don't get to meet with every patient. So instead, this is our time postoperatively to have with each other just to, you know, check in and make sure they're happy. So that's been huge. Uh, we also do virtual LASIK consults now which is great. We learned before that if we just had a phone call then, then, uh, and ask the patient to come in for all of their scans and everything to meet the doctor, um, the fact that the, 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 um, uh, the chance that they'll actually come in physically for, to meet the doctor and get their scans is about 35% less than if we were doing it with a video. So now all of our, you know, uh, p- people who, you know, uh, ring us up on Facebook or just call the office, you know, what happens is our, our, um, our, our refractive counselor will actually, uh, arrange a zoom call, uh, with them or a FaceTime. And just that face-to-face interaction has boosted the, uh, you know, Their actual entrance into our practice and in our physical practice has boosted that 35% versus phone call alone. So there's something about seeing someone that really kind of makes a difference. So, so those are two areas that we've used telemedicine. Um, and, and even in uh, some cataract consults as well, because we're so geographically spread, we have some patients that just can't get there. So they'll come into one of my satellites, they'll do their OCT MAC, their wide, scale, uh, wide field fundus image, they'll do their topography, tomography, really all the point of care testing and diagnostics, as well as a little video slit lamp exam, about 20 seconds for each eye, and all that gets emailed to me. And then I'll be able to review all of that and decide you know, what we think this patient's a candidate for. At that point, I can hop on a Zoom or a FaceTime with the patient, discuss their options, uh, and we make a decision from there. And that prevents them from having to drive, you know, so far to see me. Of course, I always do uh, take a quick look at them in the lamp exam on the day of surgery. I always want to just look at it myself one last time before uh, bringing them into the OR. But doing that has really been able to maximize our efficiency and has provided uh, really, a, 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 it's, it's been a wonderful thing for the patients. It makes things much easier.
3: Wow, Blake, this is an impressive, uh, great organization. And Chuck, do, do you, do you want to add something to what Blake just said? What about
4: your practice? Certainly, uh, telemedicine was very foreign to us at that time. And, and in the United States, uh, we didn't have the the, the, the laws. Uh, we were really caught up with the technology until the pandemic came uh, because uh, the point of service where the telemedicine actually came from the consults came from uh, had to be uh, uh, the laws had to be in place so that they allowed us to uh, to actually do it all from one place and even do it remotely from home. Uh, the other things that that occurred uh, on a national level was that the they uh, relaxed they the the, they the, uh, the payment uh, uh, you know the, the, the payment requirements. And things like that which is still ongoing as a matter of fact it's it's been kind of continued to be uh, promoted in 60-day increments but it will still continue in the united states as it is uh, which allows telemedicine to grow uh, for 151 days if it is canceled at some point after it's canceled so so this the what blake had described really is, was a tremendous help for us uh, because we were getting bottlenecks with uh, just the amount of surgery coming in, and 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 to be able to manage that for Blake as he's doing more and more surgery, and and uh, it, it it was helpful for him to be able to manage his
2: time.
3: Well, thank you, Chuck, for these wonderful comments. Uh, let's move on to your article, Blake and Chuck. It looked uh, at the ways in which the pandemic affected the refractive surgery specifically and outlined the case for why it should be a standalone global specialty. How and why do you think the pandemic changed the status quo of refractive surgery? And is there anything we can learn from it? Yeah, I mean, this was a, this
0: was a black swan event, as our article talks about, and made us ask a couple of questions. You know, why and how did the pandemic change the status quo? And what lessons did we learn? What do we have left to learn? What are, what are we going to do differently from this? And so... You know, for me, I think this is this is largely started really over the past few years. Even before the pandemic, I have residents that will come in and, uh, you know, watch us do surgery. Um, and and it, you realize very quickly that, that they just don't get a lot of training uh, here in the United States of refractive surgery. If you looked at the median of, of primary, uh, you know, PRK and LASIK performed by a resident in 2009, a graduating resident, the median was zero. So literally, you know, uh, the most common thing that, that people are doing if they're graduating and they they they're saying it's a refractive surgery that they're doing, they're not actually doing it themselves. In fact, you can just get your 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 six uh, you know, requirement surgeries, you can get that from just watching You know, a fellow or even attending do it, do it, uh, do the case. So, oftentimes we would learn, um, you know, from these uh, young doctors coming to visit us that they're just not getting the training, and in fact, that's why they're spending their time watching us. And so, you know, we've kind of had an understanding. Uh, that this needed to change. And and something interesting happened during the pandemic where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we all started meeting virtually, right? So, you know, my podcast that I do, we were starting to do that every week. And that became, a a, you know, really sort of a town hall. And then there was an explosion of, 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 you know, uh, meetings and podcasts and virtual opportunities to learn. And so, you know, I think that one thing that that we decided, uh, along with uh, some refractive surgeons all over the world, is that we've really identified the need to have um, you know, something different in the future for those who are required or who are seeking you know, the designation of being a refractive surgeon. And that's where the, the World College of, of Refractive Surgery and Visual Sciences really came into being. The, the interest of, of the World College really is to teach and promote and expand the specialty and the science of refractive surgery globally. We aim to increase the number of trained refractive surgeons and to establish refractive surgery as its own standalone specialty by providing oversights and evaluations, credentialing through education and training and certification. Um, you know, we, we, we you can look at plastic surgery. They have their own specialty. Uh, even retina kind of has its own subspecialty and its own sort of governance. Uh, yet at, at refractive surgery, we have not had that. In fact, it's never even been proposed. And so, um, you know, that's why uh, we joined, uh, you know, several other uh, thought leaders around the world um, in, in sort of trying to identify this as an opportunity Um, to sort of grow refractive surgery uh, just by simply having enough surgeons who identify as refractive surgeons. Even though there's 28,000 ophthalmologists um, in this country, you know, only 10% of them identify as refractive surgeons. And in fact, you know, five to 700 even really do the majority of the cases. You know, 75% of the cases are done by 700 surgeons in this country. And and that's a shame. We think that we can do better with that. And so uh, that's what our article sort of aims at.
3: That's impressive. And Chuck, uh, I mean, you are one of the uh, visionaries uh, of the World College. Uh, I'm sure you want to comment on it as well.
4: Yes, I think the World College was basically gave us the pandemic gave us some time to actually reflect. And, uh, you know, when you're doing some reflection on your practice and, and your time management and things like that, there's there's certain things that, that that stand out. And, and one was that, you uh, Refractive surgery had rapidly, uh, at the beginning of this century, uh, uh, the technology caught up to a point that it became a, a uh, uh, really a specialty in its own right. And as all of you know, we we have uh, uh, some international forums that we go back and forth, and we'll find uh, internationally that there may be uh, eight or nine different ways that people comment on how to treat a particular refractive case, which shows that there's extreme diversity in the world. And uh, most people, most refractive surgeons were very, uh, you know, very isolated, meaning they did things the way they did them. And and they really didn't have much contact with a lot of other refractive surgeons until they went to one or two international meetings, perhaps a year, or in-person meetings. And and those were fairly curated, uh, very quick, and kind of uh, dominated dominated by KOL or, or industry-sponsored talks. So the reality and free dialogue uh, with people all over the world uh, suddenly uh, changed and shifted this phenomenon of, uh, of refractive surgery, the need for it to become uh, an, an isolated specialty, much like other specialties have already done retina, uh, cornea, uh, plastics, things like that. Nobody today would, would possibly consider having a retinal surgery by someone that didn't have credentials in retinal surgery, wasn't credentialed. And, and, and someone who grew up with this, I started practice in 1979. Uh, so all these procedures were easier for me because they got offloaded over 40 years. I used to do all of my own corneal transplants. I did all of my retina. I was one of the last trained, fully trained surgeons who did everything from DCRs to exonerations to retinal detachments, uh, corneal transplants, things like this. Well, as time went on uh, and the practice got busier and, and specialists, subspecialists and specialists arose in their area, I was able to concentrate primarily my time on cataract and refractive. But uh, all of the refractive techniques that we learned over the years, I had all that time. When Blake got out, uh, he was kind of hit all at once with all of this. And uh, uh, so we did a year fellowship, and uh, and basically uh, I think that that uh, was able to, in our practice, we had a busy practice that was able to uh, quickly – uh, bring his, uh, bring him on board into what he needed to do very fast. But fellowships are not, private fellowships are not very available. They're not freely available uh, in many areas. And people kind of have to learn on the job. Unfortunately, uh, they don't have a lot of time to do that. So we're trying to set standards and uh, to basically increase the value of what we're doing. And we're also doing this with the idea that there needs to be a worldview and, uh, and therefore, the, the, the College of Refractive Surgery and Visual Sciences actually has uh, separate uh, advisory councils in different regions around the world because we know that the practice uh, culturally and the practice because what they're able to do or what they're allowed to do, uh, you know, varies in different regions. So, so this was a really eye-opener for us and I think something that has been badly needed uh, at this point. And uh, no one was doing that. Uh, no one had even suggested doing that. Uh, so uh, that's, that's kind of what the pandemic kind of allowed. And, and I think the visionary group, uh, some of which are own here, spent a year uh, together every week and, uh, and kind of went through all the different things and concepts uh, that we had to do to make this a reality. Thanks, Jack. Uh, great words and very inspirational.
3: Uh, I'd like to hear uh, Arthur's comments as well, because Arthur is one of the uh, visionaries, uh, as I am. And then uh, I'd like to hear also Amanda's comments uh, to uh, hear the voice from uh, someone who is not a physician, not a refractive surgeon, but very close to this world, being part of the industry and being part of uh, my personal, uh, uh, my my office, uh, uh, your patient outreach uh, strategies and all of that.
2: Arthur. So I can't really say it any better than what Chuck and Blake did. I think they've summarised it beautifully. I think for me personally, is every time we were at a meeting, and for whatever reason, the World Health Organisation stats were put up on the global burden of visual impairment. We'd sort of see that 40% is due to uncorrected refractive error, 35% is due to cataract, and all of us on the call, you know, readily acknowledge that cataract is nothing more than refractive error. You know, if you're going to once the, the patient is aphakic, they now need a refractive correction, and why would you not put the best possible correction in rather than something where you know you require glasses afterwards and then we look at things like a m d two percent glaucoma two percent, and we suddenly realize that the biggest burden and the, the elephant in the room and affecting young people who should be productive uh, you know um, productive and on the go and, and working and contributing to their local economies um it's just being ignored. And 20 years ago, there was this big drive to by the year 2020 have a lot of these people into spectacles and seeing better and functioning better. And that never happened. You know, 2020 has come and gone and, and that never happened. So this is the ideal opportunity to change the perception of refractive surgery. Refractive surgery to a large degree is seen to be people who are sort of self-serving, do things for their own benefit. And we have an amazing opportunity to change the way the world sees refractive surgery and really to change the way that the world sees we all know the benefits of refractive surgery some subgroups do we know the elite sportsmen know it um, first responders the military they all understand the benefits of refractive surgery but people who don't in fairness are our colleagues our ophthalmic colleagues aren't always aware i think optometric colleagues may be quite aware but sometimes see it as being competitive so wouldn't readily refer always And our patients certainly see the benefits. But if we can universally raise the standard, raise the bar, and within the college, we keep on speaking about the aviation industry, where when you get onto an airplane, you don't really ask for the pilot's credentials because you know if they've been through flight school, they've been validated by the airline they're flying for, they're going to be fine. And we'd like refractive surgery to be along the same lines, that if you're fortunate enough to go to the Williamson Ice Center for your LASIK, well, that's great, but if you don't go there and you go some other place that practices differently, you mightn't get the same result. And those poor results or the poor aftercare or the poor experience all reflects on refractive surgery. So, if we raise the standards and the quality and the bar across across refractive surgery globally, we do the entire um, vision correction space a huge benefit. More people will want and, and want you know want to accrue the benefits or take advantage of the benefits, and. As Chuck said, or Blake said, we don't have enough opportunity to to train. So the World College is working closely with the RSA, putting in fellowships across the world where we can train surgeons. And surgeons can train in places where traditionally refractive surgery is not available, which means you now start serving those underprivileged areas in the training process, but it's, a, it's an accredited good program. So you're doing good surgery. It's not like you, you're practicing somewhere. You're doing good surgery under guidance. And I think we've got an amazing opportunity You know, I think all of us on the call, Blake may be an exception given where he is in his career, but have had long careers, and we can sit back and reflect on a personal career. But I don't think that's the way we should see this. This is a a mark in the sand. You know, what we'd like to see when we retire one day is that there were a group of people who came together and said, refractive surgery, we're at the place, now the time is right, the equipment is right, the standard of technology is correct, the will is there, the finances are there. Let's make this a mark where... We changed the way the world saw refractive surgery and we started treating people and made refractive surgery a first rite of passage when you when you can't see well. It's one of the things you think of first rather than as an afterthought 10 years down the line or 20 years down the line. Wow.
3: That, that's, again, is impressive. It's very inspirational. Uh, as a, a surgeon who already had uh, uh, made his career, I cannot agree with you more, uh, both Arthur, Chuck uh, and, uh, and uh, Blake. Amanda, what, what's your voice? What what are your thoughts about it?
1: Well, you know, Arthur, you said it's amazing an amazing opportunity, but I'd also say it's a very timely opportunity. Um, as as someone who's not a surgeon, but who's been heavily involved or solely involved in refractive surgery, either you know, working for manufacturers or as a practice growth consultant, you know, for the past 20 years, refractive surgery is near and dear to my heart. And you know I find it very frustrating to see the market grow so slowly, the penetration rate of you know refractive procedures grow so slowly. And I think a lot of doctors today, you know, look at their volume over the past two years and they see that their volume has increased and they think that you know this is an upswing that's that is sustainable. But you know, I think if we don't really put the focus around it with you know education. Um, patient awareness, you know, driving better outcomes through better training, it won't be sustainable, and it may plateau off. Um, and I think that, you know, I was I was very happy to uh, to to hear a couple of weeks ago we were in Antwerp at the European ACOs Congress, and there was significant discussion there around not just the need for better training, uh, but also around developing a common, you know, vernacular regarding refractive surgery that all of industry, whether we're talking about manufacturers or we're talking about surgeons, um, rally around so that we can drive, share a voice. So if we're going to be, you know, working on uh, improving training and driving better outcomes with uh, the surgeons who are performing these procedures, also aligning you know, the way in which we as industry speak about these procedures, the way manufacturers speak with doctors and the way the doctors will turn around and speak with patients so that we're driving um, more share of voice regarding the procedures that are available so that, you know, when a patient, let's say it's a, um, you know, frustrated presbiote starts looking for options that are available, they know specifically what phrase to look for. Um, you know, I, I did a, an interesting Google search. I went to the to one of the main uh, uh, professional societies in the U.S. and I looked at their website, and a host of different procedures are are listed, but lens replacement surgery is not one of them. And you know, if if we can come up with a common vernacular, where a common phrase that everyone uses, everyone rallies behind. Uh, to create awareness, I think that we'll be able to start driving more procedures that way. And we want those patients to be able to find the right doctors to perform those procedures when they start looking for for places where these options are offered.
3: Well, it's so nice to to hear this alignment in between uh, the ophthalmologists uh, as refractive surgeons and the industry. And uh, uh, really, I hope and I see a great future for uh, not only the World College, but also for the refractive surgery movement uh, as a whole. So, Amanda, thank you. And this brings uh, uh, us to the conclusion of this episode of the CRST, uh, the podcast. Uh, Arthur, Blake and Charles, thank you so much uh, for being a part of uh, this discussion and for contributing such thoughtful uh, articles to the June issue cover focus. It was a pleasure to curate and we encourage you all to give it a read. Thanks for tuning in.
2: To learn more about the articles discussed in this episode and to read all of those featured in CRST's June issue, click the link in the show notes or head over to crstoday.com. And for more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.